By the authority vested in me by the trustees of Grinnell College, I now officially declare that having met all the requirements, you are today granted the degree of Bachelor of Arts and are admitted to all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities that it confers. We could take it slowly, or we could get insane. No one ever got anywhere by playing it safe. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. The seniors from the class of 2019 celebrated their graduation on Monday. Congratulations and best of luck to them as they go off into the world and carve their own paths. On this episode, we're celebrating graduation with a special guest. Author Amy Tan, this year's commencement speaker, sat down to talk with me about her books, The Meandering Paths of Making Meaning in the World and Becoming Who We Are, and the role that writing and education can play in that journey. This week's show is coming up next after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Born in the U.S. to immigrant parents from China, Amy Tan grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. By the time she was 15, she had lost her older brother and father to brain tumors. Reeling from their losses, Amy's remaining family moved to Europe settling in Switzerland for a time, where Amy rebelled against her mother's wishes and searched for her own path. Her parents always wanted her to be a doctor and a concert pianist on top of that. But she found herself writing for big corporations like IBM and AT&T. Her weeks were full of work, but lacking meaning. She discovered her passion of writing fiction as a diversion from her job, and a spark was lit. Through mostly dumb luck, Her first novel, The Joy Luck Club, was published in 1989. She didn't expect it would sell a single copy, and she wrote it for herself, really. Much to her surprise, though, it became a bestseller, spending over 40 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Countless books and bestsellers later, she's still plying her craft and still learning. Her most recent book, Where the Past Begins, is a memoir about her life as a writer and an intimate peek inside a writer's brain. I sat down to talk about her meandering path to becoming a writer and advice she has for the graduating class of 2019. I wanted to know why she accepted the invitation to come speak at our commencement this year. Because Grinnell has a philosophy that's like mine. Mm. I mean, the the philosophy of this college is really not about straight answers about anything. It's not about dictates that you should do this or get a, you know, go on a direct path to a career. Mm -hmm. It's about engaging in questions and knowing that there are no simple answers, Mm. that all of these things are continuous and that you have to be part of that conversation you know you're you're and you're not alone in finding the answers so i just find that really exciting because i did not have that education mm. and it really led me on to a different kind of path to find out what i wanted to do and what i could do in mm-hmm. the world you know the, the whole question of meaning and that's what i think is here at grinnell people are looking for meaning beyond themselves meaning within a community and in the world uh-huh. Yeah. So you said that you didn't necessarily have that type of education, um, but I feel like writing for you has been a sort of education and kind of maybe your path to finding that meaning in your life. Yes, I will say that I think it is 
an accumulation of things I learned about myself by not going in my independent path and following more what was expected of me. Mm. And that um, writing enabled me to s- discover things about myself, primarily who I am not. Mm. Um, it is d- not just about who you are going to become. When we think about careers, especially when you're a student approaching the end of your your matriculation, and that was something that had plagued me as I was growing up from the age of six. Who will I become? Mm. So I think that writing enabled me to see these things. And that also then enables me to go further into my writing and write about, you know, really, I'm writing about myself. I'm yeah. not writing to save the world. But somehow what happens is that when you write honestly, especially about painful things, you find people mm-hmm. identify with what you're saying, um, not just about your dog, <laughs> but about um, the the matters of of the heart or about hope or about expectations, about family. So since publishing Joy Luck Club, you have kind of become somewhat of a resource on the relationships of mothers and their children, even if reluctantly. Um, yeah. You know, the Joy Luck Club is specifically about Chinese immigrant mothers and their daughters, but the tensions, hopes, and expectations in those relationships are pervasive throughout mothers and their children across the world and throughout time. I know you've kind of eschewed that place as a source of authority on those subjects, but I'm sure you appreciate how people connect to that subject in your writing. And because we're on the heels of of Mother's Day and also because my mother would be very disappointed in me if I didn't (laughs) ask about the topic, I do want to talk a little bit about mothers. Well, first of all, I am not an expert. I never set out to write about this because I was any kind of expert. In fact, I would consider myself probably as confused, you know, conflicted about my mother as anybody else who's had rather a poor relationship with Uh her mother, one that had become distant. I started writing about things that suddenly revealed not how you get along with your mother so much or explaining things, but what it feels like. Mm. And that's where I think people ended up thinking I knew a lot about mothers and daughters because they would say, that's exactly how it is. Yeah. It wasn't any kind of wisdom in there. It was just like, she criticizes me and I've taken this with me the rest of my life. Um, And I think this points to the fact that if you write fiction and you were honest uh, in what you're writing, if you're writing, um, people call it, you know, authenticity, but I just call it um, a general kind of emotional chaos and you're trying to put it together into something you can understand, then you have this better chance that you will write something that will resonate with people. And for that, I feel grateful because that's nothing I can control. It's mm-hmm. not that I have a, you know, I'm not a mind reader in terms of what people want to read about. Right. Uh, and it, it surprised me, I tell you, it surprised me that people beyond Chinese Americans read this story and and identified with it. Uh-huh. You know, I I just thought that a lot of Chinese Americans would also say, that's not how it is at all. Uh-huh. So to have other mothers or daughters say that's exactly how it is was surprising to me. Yeah. So your own relationship with your mother was complicated, um, as most people's are. But at one point, she had you up against a wall with a knife to your throat, threatening to kill you. You've since come to understand your mother's behavior and life, I think, much better since when you were a child and into your early years. But 
How do you understand your mother now in ways that you did not back then? Well, my mother, you know, had she passed away in 1999. And I now can see her as uh, someone who is both very flawed, but also as somebody who very much remained the child that she was mm. when she was um, when she lost her mother, mm. when her mother killed herself. I can see her as a very lonely person, a little lonely child who longed for love, longed for somebody who understood her, who would be there to witness what she had gone through. And in me, she wanted that witness. She wanted me to feel exactly the way she felt. And when I did not, uh, she went to pieces. She became suicidal. I don't feel there's anything I have to forgive of my mother. She she said she was sorry to me later in life when she had Alzheimer's and she had a moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. But she also made me who I am in terms of how I look at things. And and if she hadn't had those experiences and if I hadn't had those experiences, I wouldn't be the person I am today. It's not to say mothers have, you know, they're they're completely forgivable for almost killing their daughters. But I also understand the circumstances that led to that. She had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. My father and brother died the year before. Um, she didn't know what to do with us. And she had always believed suicide and, and now murder um, or taking your children with you was a possible answer. Um, let me just say I, f I feel my mother was an incredible mother. I don't feel that everything she did was wonderful. Mm. And you said a lot of who you are comes from your mother. Um, you also had a father, a Baptist minister, and their two belief systems were distinct. You got different pieces from your mother and your father, surely. But as a child, especially, and a young adult, you didn't find either necessarily appealing, and you rebelled in your own ways. But how did you negotiate your parents' belief systems and then trying to establish your own? somewhere in between or in the middle or incorporating some of each? I alternately went through believing or trying to adhere to their beliefs, especially my father's. I was, a, I thought I was a daddy's girl or I, I was a daddy's girl. I thought I was my father's favorite and I discovered later I wasn't. Uh -huh. But um, <laughs> I wanted to please him. So whatever he believed in, he was very devout. Um, I would try to believe as well, you know, going up and declaring myself um, that I wanted to be saved, but not hearing God. My father heard God. I didn't hear him. Mm -hmm. um, so I always felt I was a bit of a fraud. With my mother, I would basically reject most of what she said, but she could instill, instill in me a fear an actual existential fear um, if I did not follow what she wanted me to believe. And the fear had to do with her killing herself, you know. And you just, if you're a child and you have seen that even once, your mother trying to kill herself, you never take that as just words thrown out right. in a moment of fury. Um, so the kind of beliefs that I had about my mother had to do with um, an unknown part in which any kind of reason could be um, the source of of tragedy or of um, you know anything going wrong with your family. My mother believed in God. She believed in ghosts. She believed in karma. 
She believed in bad feng shui, um, curses. She, whatever it was that could could explain the world, mm-hmm. was what she grabbed onto. And in a way, that was good because it gave me more to choose from. Mm-hmm. It, it was like. You know, I look back now as a writer, and it's like going in the candy store, and here you have this belief, you have that, and you have plenty to choose from to shape your characters. Um, and I get to examine, too, what I used to believe and what I believe now. It forced me to determine what I believe based on my own intuitions and knowledge and experiences. Yeah. So the inspiration for many of your stories, if not all of them, really comes from your life and your family's history. But you didn't always know so much about your family's history and didn't even know your mother that well, really. It strikes me that oftentimes we don't know the stories of the people that are closest to us, that we kind of take them for granted. How have you been impacted by learning about the stories of your family, uh, which maybe were previously hidden The stories that came from the secrets leaked out gradually. Hmm. It wasn't one massive revelation um, over a short period of time. You know, for example, I learned that my mother had other daughters, or Hmm. I learned that her mother had committed suicide. I learned more about her first husband. As I was writing my book, she would tell me these stories, and... One of the, the story about her leaving behind the daughters, when I first heard it, I thought, boy, if she could leave them behind, she certainly could leave me behind because she was often angry at me. Mm-hmm. She was disappointed. Um, and and as a, an adult, I look at some of those revelations a little differently. I think, how how could she have done that? Um, what What was she thinking? Did she not love them? Can you ever say it's understandable for a mother to leave one of her children behind. And my my feeling is no, unless they have a lot of anxiety and anguish over that for reasons beyond their control. Um, there were understandings that I had about um, my father and realizing more recently that he was he loved God more than our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true of many people who are devout, um, that you almost have to be to be in that position of minister. I, as I mentioned, I found out that I was not my father's favorite. That was crushing. I found that out a few years ago. Um, I found out my parents were illegal immigrants. And that answered to me some other questions I had about why they lied about certain things. Mm-hmm. You have to. I... You know, with my mother also, as as I learned about her first marriage, I understood where these warnings came from that she told me that I didn't understand, why she always thought men were bad and going to leave you in a, in a crisis and then um, cause you to want to kill yourself. You know, when you're told that at age 11, you know, you wonder, you know, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, why is this happening? So there, you know, there were a lot of things. I I continue to find things out about my mother and my father that caused me to reflect um, on our family and also who I became as as a result. I'll tell you one thing about my mother. She, you know, you, you can think of her as a lot of people call these, you know, very exacting Asian mothers as tiger moms, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of a 
overused cliche. My mother had expectations. She wanted what was the the best, the best of the best for me. But she also gave me advice from when I was very, very young, which was to never let anybody tell you who you are, to never let anybody look down on you and for you to believe they had reason for that. Um, those are very important lessons um, in that were ingrained in me for all of my life. And it came from this history of her life of being subjected, her mother being subjected to becoming a concubine, her mother killing herself, my mother being married off to some psychopathic man, a pilot, and then, you know, what she had to endure coming to this country and being looked upon as just an ignorant woman. Mm -hmm. Through writing about your family's past, which contains a, a great deal of trauma, do you think you've reformulated their stories and their pain into something positive in your books? You know, when you write fiction, you reformulate everything. Um, and as subsequent books uh, come about, you're still reformulating memory and how you understood them. Uh, it's the reason why if I were to write this same book, The Joy Luck Club, it would be different. Mm -hmm. But it's not that anything was untrue at the time that I wrote it. Um, I think that what I do when I'm writing is is not changing so much or reformulating it, it because it always begins the most important kernel of the story has to do with an emotional truth simply what it felt like that's what I'm trying to capture and what it felt like contains all the reasons why it felt that way I can have a different perspective on why it happened over the intervening years. And so when I write about it, it may be synthesized in a different way. Um, but that's what I'm doing. The narrative that goes around it, the details and all that, that's extraneous. That's the, the skill of the writer, mm. inserting all of that to make it uh, the, the package, the, the form known as fiction. But the, the deeper parts of it, the emotional similarities or the the exactness. Actually, you're always going for exactness. It's mm. not similarity at all. You Like my mother, I need the witness. I need the witness to my own life. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to capture. Mm -hmm. And how did your mom respond to the Joy Luck Club when she read it? She was incredibly proud. Um, she, she would tell people... Uh, she always had a wild imagination, as if she knew uh -huh. that I was going to be this writer. You uh -huh. know, and if any, if that would have been an <laughs> occupation. I didn't have a dream I was going to be a writer. Otherwise, uh -huh. you know, I would have been told that was the the, the sure path to you a horrible know, life of homelessness. <laughs> you know, um, but you know, I I just thought it was hilarious because she always wanted me to be a doctor. My and a concert pianist. And a concert pianist. At the same time. People think that I'm joking when I say that. Uh -huh. But it's absolutely true. <laughs> and and what s stuns me now is to realize that they thought that was even possible. <laughs> you could be a doctor, you could be, you know, interning at a hospital and then you would have actual spare time to go and practice the piano for hours in preparation for your sideline as a concert pianist. Yeah, that would be a remarkable career. Um, so 
in the Joy Love Club that the ignorance of our of our own family stories is accentuated and complicated by the fact that the mothers speak broken English. And as a result, you kind of talk about this in your own life that their stories are maybe given less credence because they don't have maybe the words that are accessible to their daughters. What other things in our lives make us think less of people's stories? And how can we get past those and listen and learn from all the stories around us? Well, we don't always listen to the stories of our families because they're right there. You don't need to ask them. You know, you just see them and, uh, yeah, their grandma or mom or whatever um, until it's too late. But then – and you've had arguments with them. You know their ways already. You think you know them so well. Then there are people that you meet, strangers, and they are um, – they don't speak English that well or they're not – that educated or they, you know, they're driving a, a taxi or um, they are wearing certain kind of clothes. All these extraneous outer appearances that immediately cause you to have a gestalt about somebody's life. And I found that when you ask people um, about their lives. You know, I do this with taxi drivers or Uber drivers when mm -hmm. I, I know they might not be offended. When they say something to me that's a bit more personal, um, like where they live, then I enter into that conversation with, oh, you know, um, you have kids, you know, do they grow up in this country? And then I find out, I found out these people were doctors or lawyers or important people in their other countries. I ask their stories. I ask what they believe. And it's, you know, as a writer, I think I'm more prone to doing that because, you know, I'm, I am interested in human nature and the stories behind that. But, you know, too often we dismiss others. And I think this is what happened in our, um, has happened in our country, hmm. that we see people as different from us and we don't want to know about them. Hmm. Um, I think it is in part one of the reasons why um, the Democrats lost the election, for example, um, that they were not as, you know, in tune with what, some other parts of the country we're going through. Uh -huh. um, I say this as an ardent supporter um, of candidates who are Democratic, but but I, I, I think that this is a lesson to us that we have to be concerned. We can't say that people are, um, you know, deplorable or they just believe this because they're uneducated. That is the way to drive them further from mm -hmm. unity, from understanding one another. So, Yeah, we all... Like your mother, like anybody, we all have our complicated stories. Yeah, yeah. And they formulate what we believe in. I, I do think that fear is one of the um, reasons why we develop what we believe. If you fear hell, you will believe more in what it takes to avoid hell. Mm -hmm. If you believe that you're going to you know, lose your job or you're going to have somebody kill you or... Uh, that you will be deprived of education. If you have fears or a feeling of being left out, those beliefs are going to influence other beliefs, and they're going to guide you. Um, and I know that because of what happened in my family. I know how easily that can happen. It has happened to me. 
And so I I understand that as as a possible reason why. And and how you get people to let go of fears or feelings of injustice, I don't know. Maybe the graduates here of the school can work on that, uh-huh. you know, work on how you make these bridges. Um, yeah. uh, and it's as with stories, with anything, situations, there are no easier answers. It's not going to happen overnight, certainly. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, what is the path toward that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's been a lot of, after the 2016 election, there was an awareness like, oh, we yeah. didn't know what was happening. Yeah. with We didn't yeah. know their stories. Right. And the need for more communication yeah. in between people who don't normally communicate, yeah. but right. the getting yeah. there of how yeah. still is a question yeah. that we have to answer. And, I, you know, I'm not saying that my point of view politically should is should govern the path or whatever. I think on just human beings in nature. Let's get rid of these political labels of who people are and just – look at what we need to do to understand each other and start, you know, conversing without immediate antipathy. Mm -hmm. So you've been immensely successful as a writer, but you also have other passions that you pursue as well. Um, And recently you've become really invested in in nature journaling. Um, You also participate in the infamous literary rock band, The Rock Bottom Remainders, (laughs) uh, going on tour and raising money for literacy programs. As I'm sure you know, Grinnell prides itself on the value of the liberal arts, and we have an open curriculum here and are encouraged to develop our interests far and wide. What value do you see in engaging different parts of your brain, and how do you see your varied interests in dabbling in as a vocalist in the Rock Bottom Remainders and nature journaling, coalescing and informing your understanding of each of them? You know, you you mentioned this thing about the brain. I actually believe people become smarter by going into areas that they are unaccustomed to, new areas that that um, cause their them to use different parts of their brain. Um, I started drawing, and I feel as a result somehow, somehow I don't understand that I'm a smarter person. You need to use your brain, and when it's too easy, when the answers seem to come to you too easily, then. You know, we fall into a state that ceases to become curious. Um, th- that is one of the reasons why I admire your college so much is that you do have um, an openness as opposed to a closed-mindedness that leads people to simply stay in one spot and do the same thing over and over again, what their pre- predecessors did. You know, this world um, requires that. This world requires going into everything, whether you're talking about science. You have to have the humanities for science. You have to know, especially these days, ethics Mm. or (laughs) needs or everything um, that has to do with who gets funded for what and who gets gets what as a result. Um, So I, I truly believe that it makes us smarter, better individuals. It makes us pay attention and makes us more creative. The more we understand, the more we want to know, the more curious we are, and the more creative we are in finding those answers. I truly, truly believe that. Yeah, I think that that curiosity is definitely a hallmark of um, a lot of Grinnell students and a Grinnell education. When you were a child, going back to talking about kind of creativity and drawing, you weren't necessarily 
creative in your art as a child. You drew what you saw and you were pretty good at it. I saw yeah. a, a sketch of your cat from when yeah. you were like 10 years old or something <laughs> and it was well done. Um, but people told you when they would see these drawings that you had a good imagination, that, you know, yeah. Yeah. except your art teacher <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> who didn't mince any words. He said, you have admirable drawing abilities. <laughs> But lack imagination or drive, which are necessary to a deeper creative level. Yeah. You're still good friends with that teacher. <laughs> I am. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but how did you develop an understanding of creativity and imagination that went beyond just replicating what you yeah. see in life? Yeah. I was asked to do a TED Talk. Yep. And it was uh, they gave us the subject and the question, which was, where does creativity hide? And it was such a puzzle to me. What does this mean? And it boiled down to after, you know, a lot of this hiding stuff and thinking of crevices in the brain, I finally realized the, the question is wrong mm. because we don't even know what creativity is. Uh -huh. I don't think anybody, if you ask somebody what's creativity, they would probably say, you know, somebody who wrote a lot of books is really creative. Well, that's an outcome of something. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean they were creative. So I began to look into the notion of what we mean by that and that it could actually be something beyond art, beyond writing. And is it something that resides in our brains that we were born with or that we develop? And as a result, um, I came to understand more how my imagination and creativity works. And a lot of it has to do with emotions, deep emotions, history, associations. I think of it as being like these Venn diagrams where everything overlaps and you get these overlaps that become the areas of potential imagination. And so that's, you know, it's still a question that I ask myself what creativity is. But I do think that what I do in drawing is primarily trying to draw realistically. Mm -hmm. And that takes some skill that anyone can learn. I learned a lot of it through, through this teacher, John Muir Laws. But the other part of being creative, I think... It requires the imagination of being there, of being the thing that you are drawing. Imagination, it's compassion. When I draw a bird, I have to be the bird. I mm. have to imagine what the bird is thinking, looking at me. And the same goes for when you're writing your When novels. I'm writing, absolutely. You have to be yeah. the characters that you're writing absolutely. about. Absolutely, yeah. So in my time here at Cornell, I've always been amazed at the wide-ranging interests of, of students, and I think... Typical Grinnellian, if there is one, is one that has, you know, wide-ranging interests, you know, philosophy, but also art, and they're also on the softball team or something, you yeah. know, like just... Yeah, yeah, or rock, rock and roll bad band. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, as this class of 2019 heads out into the world with their various skill sets, some of them have a specific career or a field of study narrowed down, but many still leave as I did, with questions about what they want to do. Yeah. yeah. And given, you know, their strong interests in pulling them in maybe separate directions or it can feel mm -hmm. that way, mm -hmm. how, how do you suggest they find their paths and what are the questions that you think are important in guiding people towards some sort of path? And yeah. How did you do that? Well, how did I do that? How did I not do that? I had so <laughs> many... Uh, I won't call them detours, but I had so many abrupt turns that 
somehow eventually led me to what I'm doing today at the age of around 30. I started writing fiction around the age of 35 or so, seriously. Um, but what I would go back and say was commonality is looking at who I was. So at times, for example, I would quit jobs because I had ethical differences. Mm. Or I would change uh, because I felt that what I was doing was meaningless and I was caught in a trap of making money, mm. that I was only doing it for the money. At some point, your life is going to fall apart when you say, am I going to be doing this 10 years from now? So, But at the same time, I advocate patience, that you do not need to know exactly what you're going to, this, this whole question, which is a fallacy of who you're going to become, right. that what you do is who you are going to become, and that your whole identity rests upon that. So if you were a lawyer, and then suddenly you are no longer a lawyer, the question is, who are you? Well, that shouldn't be there. That yeah. shouldn't be a question. You're the same person you were, but you're going to make choices, then it'll lead you to different places. And I and I think what I talk about in the commencement speech has to do with how much you're not going to know where you're going to go hmm. and that these things will come up. And then in a way, you are making choices based on who you are um, as a person. But again, who you are is still always there. We have to always remind ourselves that what we become job-wise, is not who we are. And and I think that gives people the patience to continue to find what they want to do. And it's going to change. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to change. Absolutely. The <laughs> opportunities are going to come up, and you won't even know what they are when you get out of college, and suddenly something happens, and yeah. there it is. Yeah. So, yeah, you you didn't become a writer, at least professionally, for a while, and you did a lot of things before that and you know maybe at the time they felt like detours how do those experiences though still inform your life because you know maybe now looking back you can kind of trace the path yeah, in a different yeah, way yeah and how does that continue because you know even though you became a writer when you were 35 yeah. you've still yeah. that didn't like mark a oh well there yeah. there's Amy Tan she's a writer and yeah. that's that yeah. you're still yeah. changing and and becoming yeah. it's a yeah i look back and i see particular experiences that were influential one of them is my first real job which was working as a language development specialist with children with developmental disabilities and their parents these were very young kids birth to five some of them well, I would say all of them newly diagnosed with, say, Down syndrome or, you know, anencephaly or whatever it was, very serious um, disabilities. And I tried to be a really smart person and show that I knew a lot. Well, I knew nothing about kids. <laughs> I knew nothing about how you develop language in a child who has disabilities. But what I eventually learned was to be with those parents and hear what their hopes had been. And, you know, how much they loved their kids and what they wanted for them. And we would sit there and cry. I would cry with them. And that was, I think, one of the best ways I could have learned to be a writer, listening to people and having deep compassion for what they were going through. And then working together and saying, here's what we can do next. We're just talking about communication. We're not talking about 
ABC, learning how to say this word. Mm -hmm. We're just talking about how we communicate with one another. And that is a question in all the stories. How do we misunderstand each other and how do we get that, how do we get love across? So that job was profoundly influential, uh, you know, learning to listen and not, not thinking I had to show that I was smart. And I had doubts that I was smart, too. That's why you show off that you're smart, mm -hmm. because you think you're not. Um, I had jobs that showed me that I cannot compromise on what I believe, on ethics. I mean, a lot of the jobs led me to the point where I realized I had to work alone. I had to work for myself. Um, I didn't, I wasn't a team player. Um, I didn't like to attend meetings. I didn't like consensus. I liked to have just individual opinions. So uh -huh. that that makes me not good for certain jobs. <laughs> a lot of jobs, that? probably. A lot of jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so you just need to know that about yourself. You're not going to be a team player. You want your view of the world to dominate, uh -huh. you know, your ethics to dominate, your values, all of that. So you've said that because or largely because of uh, your childhood trauma and familiarity with death that you've had to confront and think about death quite often, that you think about your own mortality every day, basically. Yep. Yep. How has that changed the way that you live now and how you go about making meaning in your life? It makes it very clear what is important in my life. And so, um, for example, um, I could be somebody who goes on book tour all the time in order to see my books be, in a, be on a bestseller list, which you have to do, basically, when your book comes out. You have to go to at least um, 12 to 20 cities and make appearances, and that's how you get, you get articles written. And then uh -huh. it just spirals from there. So I could do that to see my books on a list. But after a while, I said, you know, this is not what life really is about. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, is that going to be meaningful that mm -hmm. you were on a list or how many books you sold? And so I make decisions on the basis of that. For my last book, I did almost no publicity. I didn't go to very many cities at all. I, I love my publisher, and I said, you can have five cities, and that's it. And, and they were fine with that. I also look at the importance of relationships. And sometimes, unfortunately, it comes down to who do I not need in my life? Mm. Who is really dragging me down? And, um, you know, I I'm actually discovered I'm not a very forgiving person. So there, you know, there are a lot of things about me that are not good, but I'm not, I, you know, betrayal doesn't go over real well with me. And mm -hmm. I'm, not somebody to make peace with that. So I, re I recognize that. But I also know what's important with my family, taking care of my family, and, and being in nature, loving nature, but then also taking care of nature, mm -hmm. being involved with, with uh, endangered species, for example. That's a, a big thing that my husband and I do. And we have no children. Mm -hmm. So all our money goes, almost all our money goes to charity, um, 90%. And that focuses what we think is important in that external world. You have to decide what the charities are, the big yeah. ones. 
that are very important. What do we think needs to continue or have more of or less of or whatever? And and um, we ask ourselves that often because we'll end up doing some little tweaks to our estate plan. So that's, I think, all to the good because if you're looking for meaning, if you're looking at your life as a whole and what you want to do, it's not necessarily just job accomplishments, the things that are on the plaques on your wall. Actually, I never put them on my wall. But, you know, those areas that really meant something to you and and are lasting. So that, you know, I think thinking about your mortality is, if you're not afraid of death, (laughs) which I'm not, you, it's a good thing. You know, that, it, and it's with the idea, sometimes it's with the idea that, hey, you know, I could die tomorrow. Do I really want to do such and such? And then and if I'm on the fence, and it's not something that's going to affect anybody in a in a dramatic way. Uh-huh. You know, somebody's life is not depending on it. Yeah. You know, it's like, no. <laughs> do, no. do I want to do, you know, I get asked to be on boards, for example, and uh, they'll say, you know, I say, well, you have to attend meetings, right? And you have to ask people for money. And they say, yes, yes. And I'll say, well, I, I don't do those things. So <laughs> I can't be on your board. Because I, I think of how miserable I'd be in a meeting. On the other hand, I give money, you know, and I do certain things to promote those causes in my way. So it it's a good guide. Mortality uh-huh. is a good guide. I don't know if you'll be uh, telling the graduates tomorrow to be thinking about death. No, no, I could say that later, but that is, you know, at a time of excitement and, and also anxiety about Mm. your future. I think a lot of, a lot of people will have relief, you know, maybe it's relief because they finished it. They got their degree. Some of them have jobs. They're excited. They anticipate what's going to happen. But as you said, a lot of people don't know and their whole identity, you know, they think depends on what's going to happen next. And yeah. so I think that some of the remarks do address more the people who are uncertain, who have anxiety. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't say it out loud. I just simply say what happened to me. Yeah. And because these are not the kind of people that you give homilies to or that you give broad <laughs> scale advice and say, do this, follow your dreams, right. you know, know your passions. This, these these students are smarter than that. <laughs> so I have to do something a little bit different where I just do what writers do and they talk about themselves. But through that, as with the book, sometimes people find resonance with that and say, she said exactly what I feel. Yeah. And, and it's simply comfort in knowing you're not alone, knowing you're not the only one who feels like you're a failure. Um, and that's about it. To go out of this school and know that you know, there's there's so much out there, and you don't have to dwell upon anything that deviates from what you thought you'd be as a failure. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all good in one sense. If you find what you've learned about, it, it's all good. You know, mm-hmm. beautiful. Well, I'm sure whatever you say tomorrow will will resonate well, and it looks like we're gonna have good weather as well. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So thank you, Amy, for taking the time to sit down and talk with me and for speaking at this year's commencement. It's an honor and a, a great joy to speak with you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Amy Tan spoke with me on Sunday before she gave the college's commencement address on Monday. You can find links to her speech, 
her TED Talk, and some of her most recent work on our website, grinnell.edu podcast. Tan was awarded an honorary degree, along with some others, including Edith Renfro-Smith, who was born in Grinnell in 1914 and graduated from the college in 1937 as the first African-American woman to do so. She has since gone on to live a remarkable life, and at the age of 104, is sharp and full of life. I interviewed her about the secrets to her longevity, and that interview will be coming up on a future episode. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Next time, we're going to talk with Mike Latham, who, after five years as dean of the college, is heading back home to Hawaii to become the president of his alma mater, Punahou High School. Then we're going to talk to the language assistants from Russia, Germany, and Argentina, who spent this year at the college teaching students, taking classes, and immersing themselves in Grinnell. We'll also chat with the owners of the new bakery in town, Grin City Bakery, which is opening its doors soon, and Anya Chamberlain from the class of 2019, who sat in the Rosenfield Center's Smith Gallery for five days in a row with a dozen loaves of bread, feeding and drawing people, with bread, all day. Ah, the liberal arts. Music for today's show comes from Pottington Bear. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. <laughs>